welcome to a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. I am your host, Ian Price. This week, we introduce, yes, the next legendary band of prog rock who will blend harmonious vocals with increasingly complicated music and create a string of prog rock masterpieces, starting this week with 1971's The Yes Album. So today, we're talking Yes. Yes formed in the London club scene in 1969 and included lead singer John Anderson, bassist Chris Squire, keyboardist Tony Kay, drummer Bill Bruford, and original guitarist Peter Banks. The band were devotees of Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles, and they set out to make music that combined vocal rock with jazz influences. So for a year and a half and two commercially unsuccessful studio albums, they, they worked away. But creative tensions between John Anderson, Chris Squire, and original guitarist Peter Banks would see him dismissed from the band. They quickly recruited the hardest-working kid on the UK club scene, guitarist Steve Howe, to join the band, and they all retreated to the countryside to write a new album. The result, the Yes album, recorded with Prague super producer Eddie Offord, would spawn concert favorites I've Seen All Good People and Starship Trooper and reach number four on the UK charts giving them the commercial success and creative momentum to go to the next phase of their career. While this album won't be as mystical or technical as the follow-ups Fragile or Close to the Edge, it sets up the 1970s Yes sound, John's soaring vocals, Chris's aggressive bass, Bill's intricate drumming, all supported in this album by Tony's keyboard wash. Most importantly for Yes, it marks the entrance of the wild guitar acrobat Steve Howe, a key songwriter and stringed wizard, seemingly allergic to power chords. Ultimately, this is absolutely the sound of a confident young band expanding their songs and instrumental dynamics. As I said last week, Yes was my introduction to the progiest of prog. I started at Close to the Edge and worked backwards through Fragile and then here to the Yes album. So this album starts with the high-octane freakout of Yours is No Disgrace and floats into the majestic bass of Starship Trooper and the freaky folk of I've Seen All Good People. The Yes album is just so easy to love. And sharing the love with me today as well, I am joined by Nick Osmussen. Hello, Nick. Hi, happy to be here. And Brian Gann. Hello. G'day. Okay, so here we are to talk about 1971's The Yes album. I guess the big news of this will be the introduction to Steve Howe, one of the legends of prog rock. And then we are going to introduce this band, Yes. So we'll start with you, Brian. Talk to me about your history with Yes and what you think Yes brings to the world of prog. Well, I actually think uh, in preparing for this episode, I realized I think this is the first time I'd ever heard Yes. And this this is going to be a, a bit of a weird story, but it was in the trailer for the movie Big Fish, a somewhat forgotten Tim Burton movie. The song is not in the film, it's in the trailer. It came out in 2003, so I would have been 14 years old. But I've Seen Good People was featured in that trailer, and I loved it. And I remember, like, I probably tried to, like, ask Jeeves, like, you know, what this song or band was. And I don't think I found it right away. And when I think I got a yes, maybe two, three years later, it all kind of clicked together for me. Um, but yeah, I, as far as I know, maybe I heard Roundabout on the radio or something, but this yeah. is the first time I consciously was aware of Yes. So just last week, we talked about King Crimson, and we've kicked off the concept of prog rock. So Yes are another one of the, the big beasts of prog. What, uh, what do you think they bring to the genre? You know, when I, when I close my eyes and I think of prog rock, I basically think of Yes more than any other band, yeah. because I think they have all of the traits and in the best way possible, right? They have the, the virtuoso musicians. They have a little bit of the quirkiness. You know, Rick Wakeman, I think, was probably wearing capes at this point on stage. Um, but then you have people like Steve Howe, as you mentioned, joined for this album. And I mean, somehow he's not on the Rolling Stone list of 100 best guitarists, which is insane, because I feel oh, like he's probably, yeah. a top, probably top 10. Uh, I mean, he's he, he brings, I think, the last, basically the, well, you could argue it's him or Rick Wakeman to really solidify their sound. I think Tony Kay does an admirable job, but I, uh, this, this is where it gets good guys in terms of prog rock. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're into the, we're into the classic phase now. So Nick, talk me through any interaction you have 
would this band get us? <laughs> well, as not a, a hardcore uh, fan of prog rock, I haven't listened to this album since we were listening to it together in the loft on vinyl. Yeah. Um, and that was when we were in high school. So some odd, you know, 14, 15 years ago. And I was surprised how much I forgot about it, but I was also surprised at how much I liked what I heard. And so I was a little curious, like, why did, why did I forget this album? But I do agree with Brian. When I think of prog rock, I think of yes. I think I tend to think of Pink Floyd because that's where my heart lies. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, when it comes to like prog rock, like prog rock at its core, yes has has everything. And you can tell they're going through a transition during this album. You can hear a lot of the Beatlesy influences, uh, especially uh, in the first track. And the marriage between Steve Howe and what was a Beatlesy band, I think only uh, like amplified the prog and um, yeah yeah uh, you can tell how much he brings to the band just in the little guitar vignettes that he has and then as he does his thing throughout nearly every song he's he's doing something fun yeah i'm surprised at how strong he came on actually he doesn't feel like the new guy he feels like he's always been there but uh he brings feel like we're gonna say the same thing about rick wakeman oh yeah we absolutely in in a few episodes time we will we will mention this same concept for their their later keyboardist Rick Wakeman yet another prog legend and i think the other thing that is a marked turn for this album and very 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 important for yes is john anderson's completely insane new age lyrics as we start to go through the songs i'll be telling you what these songs are about according to him, but you would be gosh darned to figure that out from what he actually says. Uh, so how, how do you feel about the lyrics? Uh, uh, as a songwriter, just a hobbyist, that kills me. Uh, and ly- lyrics are, are so important. Uh, it's why I love Pink Floyd, one of the reasons why. And so it, it kills me to hear that he didn't have more clarity in terms of his new agey lyrics, but Hey, it, it really brings co- color to the band. Yep. I, I will say that the fact that I can't really interpret where, where he's going brings a lot of character to yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what makes yes. Yes. In so many ways. I think he's, he is the main songwriter and this, the main lyricist and uh, rightly or wrongly, these lyrics are the essence of yes. Yeah. If, if he had been more like, philosophical and introspective as Roger Waters, I don't know if Yes would feel the same. No, I I, I actually think that for me, and this is going to be me gushing about Yes for about an hour now, Yeah, I think Yes does take me to a different play, plane of existence, as in I think they're, they are, they're not tethered to Earth in any way, and I think that has a lot to do with these completely ludicrous lyrics. And I think you're Great completely point. right. If it was about human interaction, and we'll talk about a song in here where he almost talks about human-centered things, and I'm almost like weirded out when I was like, oh, what, what is this like ethereal being doing down on our plane? <laughs> Brian, do you have any thoughts about the lyrics? You know, I, I, I think in a, in a um, future episode, we'll be joking about how every Yes song is a Vietnam War um, protest. But I didn't realize this is really the, the beginning of that with Yours is No Disgrace. And I ne- it had never dawned on me that Caesar's Palace referred to the Caesar's Palace Hotel in Las Vegas, not some sort of like Roman history reference. Oh, I absolutely. Thought, I absolutely thought it was. <laughs> Uh, apparently not. No, apparently it's it's referring to like people partying away in Vegas when people are dying in war. I, I could not have told you that that was the case. Go on. I I also wrote down one of the lines in Yours is No Disgrace, Shining, Flying, Purple Wolfhound, Show Me Where You Are. Because that was probably the most perplexing of all the lyrics of this whole album. And I, just, I was determined to figure out what that meant. And there's a couple fleeting uh, references that a purple wolfhound is a type of jet but really could not confirm that. There was not much information. I also read that he was just high in a van driving between like two venues in Scotland when he wrote this. Probably in marijuana, which I always thought marijuana was much weaker back then. So I don't know if they got some skunky Scottish weed or or what happened there, but uh, it's not like he was on acid or something. I mean, no, to be fair to John, I think in every state he is John. 
Like, <laughs> I think John Anderson was born this way. <laughs> He's hatched from the egg, <laughs> like the little robin's egg. It's interesting that he wrote these lyrics uh, on a in a van, because I think, isn't that where he wrote his lyrics for Roundabout as well? In and around yeah. the lake? So he's really, really using the that transportation time valuably. Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's an efficient man. So I think John gets a lot of gets a lot of crap for his lyrics. I honestly was like, you know, having just done the Beatles not that long ago, they weren't that much saner. Like, I'm just going to throw that out there. I was like, actually, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds isn't like a, a gem of clarity. It was it was about as wacky as any of this. I'd say the body of work provides better context for how off the reservation songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds were. Yeah. Um, because at least the Beatles, I'd say 95% of their songs have discernible topics. And actually, to their credit, were incomplete sentences. That's yeah. <laughs> not a string of, of nouns and verbs. But as I said before, I don't think yes would be the same without yeah. this sort of uh, soundscapes that John Anderson provides. The The fact that like the lyrics don't mean anything bothers me when I'm like thinking about it. But when I'm yeah. listening to it, I it doesn't matter. No, no. And I think, honestly, they mean something to me. And I couldn't tell you what they mean, but they mean something to me. Well, and John Anderson's up there performing these songs, you know, every day, you know, yep. like, or ho- however often they would perform. So, you know, they, I'm sure by the hundredth time that he's saying, you know, I've seen all good people, it means something to him, even if yep. it doesn't truly translate to the listener. Yeah. I mean, I think, but honestly, it translates to me in some way. I think, again, this is more the dog watching TV emotion sure. thing where you're just yeah, watching. Yeah. You're like, ooh, like I, I get what you're saying. Even though, yeah, as you're right, the words on paper probably don't come across. Yeah. You're not, you're not Googling yes lyrics unless you're doing a podcast about prog rock. Because <laughs> I have the benefit of hindsight. I know their body of work. I know what they're known for. In fact, prog rock is the first thing you say when you bring up the band Yes. Yeah. But this is the first time I've listened to Yes and thought, hmm, what if they just recorded a bunch of three-minute singles? How different? It Sure, it wouldn't be prog rock, and we wouldn't be talking about them on this podcast. Yeah. But I listened to this album, and I was like, hmm, they could have pulled it off to great effect, I think. If they if they had just sat in, been like, hey, we don't want to go on this like journey through sound. We'd rather just record a bunch of hits. Yeah, this is the first time I've listened to Yes, and that three minutes would be a great single. That three minutes would yep. be a great single, and uh, sure, it wouldn't be what well, it shouldn't. It, we wouldn't be talking about it here. But um, I thought that that was an interesting approach. Uh, like, what what if they what if they had taken a completely different tact? Yes. So to that point, so the first thing is that they're obviously Beatles heads. So I think somewhere in there, there was just these characters who really, really, really wanted to write Give Peace a Chance. And I think that John Anderson specifically always said that the point was having a strong melody. And so I will say for all of Yes's craziness, at the very core of their songs, I actually think they're probably some of the most melodic. You know, we did uh, King Crimson last week, and they really just completely go off. Uh, Certainly later on in their career, they're just going to go off on wild experimentation. I think for Yes, they really do actually hew to very, very singable lyrics. I think they just happen to add in a bunch of the crazy solos and stuff. But you're right. I think there's three minutes here and there that they could have really shaved it down to. But it wouldn't have been nearly as fun. It wouldn't have been as fun. And and I'll, I'll explore that in some of these songs coming up. But you're absolutely right. I think that the, at the very core... I'd almost venture to say that for me personally, I think they have the strongest melodies. Obviously, like Pink Floyd went off, and we'll talk about them in a lot of detail later on in this series. But, you know, I think at, at this stage, we've got Genesis and ELP and King Crimson and whatnot. And and I think they have lots of great songs, but I think Yes are the, the nearest to just sitting down and writing that three-minute song. And then they added 17 more minutes <laughs> and then finish the song. Obviously, this this album represents a big transition for Yes, um, both in terms of sound, but it, even just the composition of the album. The first two had several covers, 
which I mean, I think other bands, you know, like ELP would continue to kind of do covers or um, in, in their repertoire. But I think this is the, that firm break when we're all in with Yes at this point going forward. Yeah, we, we already mentioned, obviously, we we, st- well, we still have Tony K. So we're, we're kind of one band member away from, I think, what most people consider the most classic lineup. But there's one other thing that's actually missing. And I think this is probably the only band in this podcast will talk about the album cover so much. But we, we don't have a Roger Dean album cover for this. Yes. Um, I don't think much of this album cover. I think it's pretty it's pretty forgettable. I don't I think it's kind of a gross green yellow. Um, and I cannot wait for for Roger Dean to show up. Yeah. So so I, I should hope that everyone has seen this album cover, but basically it's a kind of a fisheye view from like basically like a CCTV camera down on the guys in the in their green room backstage, and it's literally an ugly, hideous green. The only kind of fun fact is Tony K has broken his foot, so his foot is in a cast. Oh, I just I just noticed that. Yep. So he's got himself a foot in the cast. And then as Brian is referencing the next album, Fragile, will go on to have the legend Roger Dean, who will go on to produce lots of yeses, kind of fantastical landscapes, which perfectly complement the music. Um, but this right now is just a hideous, green, <laughs> awful, awful group photo. Yeah, it's it's hard to think of who said yes to that one it was like yeah enthusiastic thumbs up this is this is wonderful i think it's like you could have literally scratched anything onto like a napkin and it would have been at least interesting because uh, it's not even a good press photo of them no. like it's just just kind of them it's like they're being moody like they're on the cover of a queen album but yeah. then decided to not make anything else look cool yep and, the, and then there's a weird um hairdresser's mannequin kind of just hanging from the ceiling adding to the kind of saw like nature of this vignette (laughs) yeah apparently they didn't have much time to to do this photo shoot and they failed to get a good photo for several attempts and this was like at the very end and they just wanted to get it over with and it really shows if you look at their face they're just like this is like you know at christmas when grandma's trying to get everyone together for a photo and everyone's just like (laughs) oh just got this over and she's and she's got her her hairdresser's mannequin just hanging from the ceiling as usual. <laughs> By the way, is that is, is that John on the the far right in the back, and is that Chris Squire next to him in the middle? Let's have a have a little look. John is either standing on some apple boxes or Chris Squire is leaning down. There's no way they can be that similar in height. Like, uh, yeah, I think I think John's like five two, and yeah. Chris is what six six. Yeah, he's like six, 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 seven. He's huge. Yeah, he's got to yeah. be. He's got to be standing on some yeah milk crates or something. And with that, we start on the first song on this album. Yours is no disgrace. So apparently, speaking of lyrics, the song is about Vietnam. <laughs> but I will say this song is a great introduction to John's new age shift in lyrics. So we've touched on a lot of the purple wolfhounds and all Caesar palaces and all the goods. But what I will say is this is just such a fantastic coming out party for the band in a general sense. Like, it has the thunderous guitar and the drums and all that sort of stuff. The solos, something new is happening every 10 seconds. Like, I just can't believe how much kind of stuff they packed into this. And you really feel like, I'm excited. We're on, we're on the road now. We're yes. This album has multiple classics of the yes overall repertoire like any best of you know concert you would expect oh there's gonna be three or four songs from the yes album yeah i mean other than maybe every once in a while a time and a word there's really nothing memorable from the first two albums of yes this is just you get some absolute classics I, i'll get to it when we get to the song but one of my top three yes songs is is on this album i, I was gonna say i think this is probably a great place to get into steve howe it's testament to how strong he came in. And I think he had been on the London club scene for a while. And then he is a very meticulous and showbiz oriented guitarist in the like literally working at his craft type of way. So I think he was probably that way at age 22 or whatever he was when this, this happened, but you can tell he just starts and, you know, imagine being the new guy and filling this, this song to the brim with as many solos as he has. And we'll, like we'll talk about him kind of coming on as a songwriter, but like man, he just starts out the gates here. 
Yeah, I what I enjoy about this song is um, from a songwriting perspective, I think it's great that they all pretty much all of them have songwriting credits. Yep. And it's great that Steve Howe was involved in it as well, because uh, you can really tell with his riff early on how prominent he's going to be moving forward. Yeah, I mean, the, the stuff about Vietnam, I mean, I wasn't getting that <laughs> either. But um, <laughs> sure, uh, this was one of my favorites on the whole album. I, I mean, I think like it starts off the album with such excitement. And I think this will start a trend that they're really, really good about. And again, something that distinguishes them is they do such a good job with the multi-part solos. So mm. Steve doesn't just like solo for 30 minutes and blah, 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 blah. I think they do a chunk and a chunk and a chunk and a chunk. And this is the first time that happens, including the middle guitar breakdown that he just like launches. And uh, they've got the guitar like whizzing around, you know, stereo whizzing around your ears. I can't believe how strong this starts in a guitar sense. And I think the other thing that this song really, really has is I think the whole song is sung in this three-part harmony, which I hadn't noticed because the harmony is so tight, but they're singing it as a group the whole time. Yeah, I was going to ask you a question uh, about John Anderson's harmonies. So the band has other vocalists that harmonize with him. It's not him harmonizing with himself on a recording. So this is John, Chris, and Steve. Very cool. Very uh, CSNY. That's refreshing to know, and I'm kind of surprised that I haven't asked this question before or, or bothered to look it up on my own because their multi-part harmonies are so emblematic of yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's akin to, you know, the folk bands, like I, like I just said, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, their multi-part harmonies. So that's very cool to know. I will also say uh, on the topic of Steve Howe, he said that the guitar solo in this song was one of his favorites he ever did because he got to uh, use some new recording techniques and do overdubbing with his guitar. So you can tell how, you can tell the direction that they're gonna go just based on that alone is that, hey, I love doing this real technical in the studio stuff and pushing the boundaries of what audio recording can do. And I think when I think of prog rock, that's one of the things that I think of is like, hey, we use all of the tools at our disposal. So to shout out uh, the the lads at Progressive Palaver, another good podcast about this, one of them described Steve Howe as a raging daredevil with no boundaries. And this is the song I always think about when I think of that phrase, because it's like he went to town. He played every single guitar. He's like in every single nook and cranny of this song. Like he, he never just sat down and played a chord. He's going. And I think, again, testament to him, Every solo is interesting because he's doing a different solo every five seconds. So the other thing I really, really love about this song is uh, Tony Kay, who's the, the keyboardist for this album, really just plays big organ washes. And I think actually this was such a good album then for Steve to go off because you kind of just have this nice like like nice waves going on in the background with these organs rather than what will come later with Rick Wakeman's equally insane soloing. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Cause being kind of a, not and not as a hardcore Yes fan, I didn't know who the keyboardist was before Rick Wakeman joined. Yeah, And so when I was listening to these songs, I thought about, hmm, who's playing these keys and why is it so background? Because so when I think sedate. of Yes, I, th yeah. I, I, think, I think a lot of noodling on the keys. Uh, so it's it's nothing against Tony K. I love simplicities, and sometimes yeah. the best thing you can do for a band is to just sit back. But it's a marked difference between yeah. this album and then Fragile, which comes next. Yeah, I think so. The other thing I really, really, really like about this song, and yes, I think we'll use this a handful more times, but it, it's actually a really, really rare songwriting technique. They repeat the same verse like eight times. <laughs> <laughs> As in, they never bother changing the lyrics or whatever. They they will do it in different ways and different styles and whatever, but they will just sing the same verse. And it actually really, like, I hadn't thought about it that much because, again, I don't really listen to the lyrics word for word. But um, it's almost got the effect of a mantra where you just start to take it on. And actually, the more times you hear it, it makes more sense. So that's actually pretty sneaky on Vaughn's part. But I really, I, I really like that style. And it's like, because they changed the song so much, you hear lyrics in different contexts. 
It's interesting because uh, unlike two other songs, um, Starship Trooper, and I've seen it all good people that have like the subs, you know, the sub songs within it. This is just one long song, although I, d- I do think it has its own independent parts. But to your point, it does have that same core structure, which maybe that is the, the mantra repeating throughout. Yeah, I, I think for me, the kind of the end when I think it's just Steve Howe on acoustic guitar and John singing, that's kind of like when it's best. It has just a big sound, but it's really yeah. it's doing a lot with a little rather than the, the b- more bombastic stuff that we come to love from Yes later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can tell that Yes is using the less is more at times with, with repeating the lyrics, which uh, as a songwriter, I love. I love being able to just you know, sculpt sonically around some like very simple phraseology. And I don't do it as much as I wish I would. I I, I wish I would do more of that repetition um, in the hobby songs that I write just for yeah. fun. And I, I totally agree, uh, Brian, that acoustic part at the end is something you don't hear Yes do very often, but it was so clean and so delightful that 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 has to be that has to be my favorite part as as well. I don't know if it was yours, but it, it's mine. Definitely. You you hear the brightness of the acoustic guitar, and it just it just rings so true. I, I don't know what it is about it. The the way that they captured his acoustic guitar, fantastic, fantastically recorded and performed. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of performance, speaking of guitar performance, no less actually, the next song on the album is Clap sometimes called The Clap, a Steve Howe solo piece. Um, I think this is like his first performance with them live, and they let him go to town on this kind of country hoedown guitar solo. Just a little history on the song. It was incorrectly titled The Clap on the original album's pressings. It was influenced by the song Classical Gas, and uh, it was written to celebrate the birth of Howe's son. There's a just a little quick history uh, about the song. I think the only thing that the song does for me is just remind me. It's like, oh yeah, Steve's here. Like Steve is here. And I think as a band dynamic thing to give him literally a solo, I think from his first live performance ever with them was like, yep, Steve's just a hundred percent part of a band. He's not the new guy. He's just in. Yeah. And from a band dynamic perspective that, uh, that shows how, how well they all, get along and work together um, yeah. or just their openness to considering like, Hey, we just brought this guy in. I didn't know that recording was from the first time he ever played uh, with them. I'm sure they played in sessions, you know, yeah. on the side, but live that's, that's pretty huge. What bumps me about this song is that why, why wasn't it a like studio recording? <laughs> because it breaks up the flow of the album for me. And this is something that, that Pink Floyd does particularly well so it kind of spoils me for all these bands that are also in the prog rock space that don't have songs that flow into each other. Uh, the benefit of hindsight, I know all of this stuff. How would they have known like that's what the cool thing to do was like to have songs flow to into each other and what I would love to hear from a Yes album. Mm-hmm. But the track order sometimes bumps me and then the fact that this song, which I really actually quite enjoyed, uh, I do enjoy country picking instrumentals but it it bothered me that it was live and it didn't fit with the other tracks around it like in a sonic sense album structure and flow is something that's so important to me Uh, it bums me out when a band puts almost no thought into it or they clearly put thought into it but like it didn't come off the way that they probably hoped so yes we'll go on to be very very famous for their long classical length pieces like 20 minute pieces is going to be a kind of yes signature. And in fact, I think, you know, just last year, if you're yes, so 1970, basically, you're still in the Beatles, we're going to do a, a handful of three-minute songs phase. They're only just now with this album starting to do the long, long pieces and then probably starting to think about the, start to think about kind of album tracking. I like this song. And you kind of already said this, and I like that they're giving Steve Howe a chance to introduce himself. Um, and what he can really do. Uh, Nick, I hear what you're saying around the the live section and it breaks it up. To be honest, I forgot this was a live song until I re-listened to the album. Um, so I don't think it lingers with me. And this becomes a big, you know, live staple 
where they'll let like you know whoever's the keyboardist do a big solo they'll let steve howe come and do this or mood for a day and uh, i'm a fan because i think it's very prog let's let's let our our members flex on what they do best and this yeah. is i think kind of the start of that really because i th- i think it would be the first big solo effort on any album from a yes when that becomes as we as you already said more common and fragile and especially like in the live performances um but this is the beginning and i'm i'm here for it so we now go off to space with Starship Trooper, another multi-part yes stravaganza. So we start off with a, a, a huge bass line, and I don't know what effects he's put on his bass there, but this is a, a Chris Squire masterclass. And then we go into one of John's strongest melodies, which this apparently is a song about guardian angels and love of Mother Earth. So I'll let you guys chew on that one. But how do you feel about this? Top three, yes, song for me. I love this song. And it's it's weird where most of the time I consume this song via live recordings. And so it's interesting to go back to the original studio recording. And it, I mean, it's very similar, obviously. But this is a little bit more of like a melodic grind. Whereas I think as a live staple, typically it's their encore song. It's more a bit more bombastic, a little bit more noodly. And this just has this interesting rhythm to it. To the title, I think this also is interesting because it's, this is where we, I think we always think of prog rock as futuristic or maybe even slightly science fiction-y. Apparently, John Anderson was aware of the Robert Heinlein book, Starship Trooper, never read it. But I just think that's always fun. Like, imagine if you were aware of the book 120 Days of Sodom and were like, sounds like a nice long vacation <laughs> in a place called Sodom um, and wrote a song about it. But... <laughs> You know, there's nothing really science fiction in the lyrics. Yeah, I yeah. I agree on the Chris Squire-ness. You can really tell uh, this is his quintessential, like, chunky bass performances that uh, that I particularly love in uh, yep. in Fragile. And also, I love the sustained chord where they, they just played it in an arpeggio. Mm-hmm. It's like it never really fully resolves, which I thought was, was really great. Uh, yeah. It kind of like lead, it leads you down like a like a path to hopeful resolution but it just continues in that sort of repetitive arpeggio like nature that was one thing that really stood yeah. out to me to his credit i think steve except for worm which we'll talk about in a second the kind of crescendo of the song steve actually kind of hung back a little bit and and let chris and then bill bruford really shine here Bill Bruford really has the really delicate drums, or you really notice the delicateness of the drums. And I think he does fills I never would have thought to do. And I think you can really tell that he's trying to jazz it up. And so I think the interplay between Chris and, and Bill is just fantastic in this song. And then we come to the final part of this song, Worm, spelled <laughs> yeah. German um, style. Worm. Uh, yeah, which is just a, a massive, massive like guitar extravaganza and i think also the the 1979 version of yes made it a guitar versus guitar battle on a rotating stage with rick wakeman and steve howe but it's just such a perfect ending that's really cool because i when i think of Prague, uh one of you said it it's letting your musicians show their skill uh and a in a guitar guitar battle uh is something that i believe i've I'd heard that a prog rock band would do, but I didn't know it was yes. I heard I heard the myth. You heard the rumors. In this <laughs> yeah. far off land called England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was this song and I didn't know it was yes. So that's really cool. I didn't know that. So I, in preparation for this podcast, I had uh, queued up basically the first half of Beatles 1, where it was like Love Me Do, Hard Day's Night, Eight Day Week, like the early real simple Beatles songs. And then I had queued quickly into Starship Trooper right after, basically, and I hadn't thought about this. I had just left my queue a-running. And so I had just finished the Beatles kind of early pop hits and then came into this song. And I don't know why it's taken me uh, 15 years now to figure this out, but I can't believe how m- much busier Prague is. But I, I could understand why people get annoyed with Prague because there is so much more information. now. My positive spin on that is that I think it means you can dive deeper. So once you've heard the singing part, then you go back and listen to the song again, and then you hear the bass, and then you go back and listen again, and you really hear the drums. 
So I think there's so, so, so many layers. And then there's nine minutes per song to dig through. So I say there's a, a lot of good stuff in there. But I had just realized, like, wow, they really put a lot of extra stuff onto these songs. Well, Prague is in a way that they're, you know, pushing the audio recording capabilities of the time. They're also pushing what it means to write a song and have it and have it be popular. Honestly, like I don't think about this enough when I think about Prague. It's pretty brave to do. Like this is our career. We're staking our career on being so different. We're going to have a whole new genre named for it. Yeah, I, I guess I hadn't put myself really in the because uh, I think I bet for them at the time they're young and full of spit and vinegar. You know, they're all twenty three or something at this point. I think they just think, well, what's after psychedelic music? Like we we all really 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 like Sgt. Pepper's. What are we doing next? And then I think there was a record buying audience, obviously, for this. Their contemporary biggest hit was Tales from Topographic Oceans, which is four songs each of. 20 minutes, and that will be their biggest hit at the time. I think it came in at number one for two weeks in 1973 or 1974. And so I think people were kind of willing to go along for the ride a little bit. And and I will say, I think Yes is a good example because they're not aggressively challenging in a way that other progressive rock bands might be. Like Yes challenges you, but not painfully. I won't even say challenges you. I think yes, yes pushes the envelope without annoying you or annoying me. Yeah, I'd be interested to get someone's opinion who's never heard, who doesn't even know what progressive rock is. Show, drop them into this yeah. album and say like, "Hey, give me your five star review, whatever, whatever." Yeah, I, as I guess the whole north star of this podcast will be. I think if you like rock, there's lots and lots and lots of things to like about progressive rock. Because I think this has softness and heaviness and lots of vocal melodies to boot. And so I think there's a lot of, of stuff that the the folksters and the Zeppelin heads could all get down with in this. So I'm going to take you all on a journey now. I've closed my eyes. <laughs> so for, for those at home, Nick and Brian have closed their eyes and they've gone into the, the memory palace. And I'm going to take them on this journey. So I'm going to take you back to the original Star Warses to Return of the Jedi, where we meet one Jabba the Hutt. That threw me off a little bit. Okay, I'm still imagining it. So No, so we're with Jabba the Hutt now. And then I'm going to take you to the prequels, when they were like, oh, by the way, he's also got a cousin like Grungo the Hutt or whatever. And also he's got like aunts okay. and kids and stuff. Um, and also there's a, a, a okay. the Hutt Jedi and all this. I realized when I was listening to this next song that... Keeping something truly unique really makes it special. <laughs> and with that, I'll bring you into, I've seen all good people, <laughs> one of the most unique songs in Yes's repertoire. It's interesting for a, a very vocally based band. They really never did this like folk chant sing-along ever again. And and I think the song is all the more powerful for it. It's it's pure it's pure Jabba. Um <laughs> what a metaphor. This is, I think, our introduction into John Anderson as a romantic. Um, oh. I, I don't think it was done quite as well as And You and I, two albums from now, but I, I do love a little bit of romance. I didn't really pick up on the chess match between men and women until I had to read the lyrics. Um, this might be the best lyrics on the whole album. Like, yeah. I, I mean, they're almost, on a human level, good lyrics. <laughs> also, it's interesting that you went with man and woman. I went with John Anderson and God. Oh. So that's... that's uh, <laughs> make the White Queen run so fast, she hasn't got time to make you wife. So is the White Queen God? Is he chasing... Well, no. So, okay, this is where it all falls apart, is I think he's chasing himself. He's the White Queen. Or something. Maybe that's a part of his... Or maybe that's fame. Yeah. I don't know. John Anderson leaves everything open to interpretation, including his interpretation of his own lyrics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, it's, it goes down so many levels. I do agree that these are... This is John Anderson's best lyrics. And all of the yes I've listened to, I'd say these are my favorite. 
this song gets stuck in my head. In fact, it's stuck in my head right now. And this is the song that I think of when I think about Yes. It's not Roundabout. It's not uh, it's not any of the the yeah. classics from their later years. It's th- this is the song that I think of when I think of Yes, which is so strange because it doesn't really capture what Yes is. Like you said, it's a it's a one off. Yeah, it's a one off uh, where they're experimenting a little bit and they never go back to it. But for me, this this is the one that I think of when I think of the band. No, and I think this will have been in in the very intro to this whole podcast series. I think this is one of like maybe the four songs I name checked because I think this song and Roundabout will be the two of Yes's songs that kind of made it onto classic rock radio, like a more general audience base. As I think they did, you can cut out the first three minutes and it's a fantastic single. And and I think yeah, you know, just it builds beautifully. I think the the melodies are great. I think it's so clear. The organ swell in the middle there gets me every time. And then in the background, you can hear Steve and Chris singing Give Peace a Chance, which is pretty sneaky. So, I, I mean, obviously, they're still vibing on, on, well, John Lennon, but the Beatles. And then it breaks down to the second half, which, frankly, I've never loved because I'm not a boogie-woogie guy. But forcing myself to listen for this this episode, God, they're so good. Like, they're so good at playing and this is another one that apparently is about the Vietnam <laughs> War. <laughs> Where? Oh, what? So we've only got like another seven more Vietnam songs to get through, <laughs> and then we'll be done with this album. And then I guess it's only right that I give the recorder player Colin Goldring a shout out because the recorder makes a strong appearance in this song. I think the recorder like floating in and out between the vocals. You know, just when a song just needs that one extra thing and you're like, thank God they added this recorder. <laughs> you know it's there, but you don't really, it's not invasive. It's not like, hey, like this is the dominant element of this song. But you're right. Is Would you say this is the most popular use of a recorder in in music? Oh, I mean, besides maybe Man Down Under. Oh, okay. Or besides maybe a, Land Down land, Under. Yeah, from a, come from come a from land, land Down, down Under. under. Yeah, I think that's that's probably the only one that's even in competition with this. Wow, that was a quick pull. Uh, I couldn't think of any any other songs with re- recorder in them. I did just finish listening to my flute rock compilation, Midnight Flutie Jams. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is up there with Land Down Under in terms of best recorder songs. <laughs> so then we leave. I don't know how I'm going to transition this one. We leave Jabba the Hutt's <laughs> palace. His den of iniquity. <laughs> and we go on Aventure. So Aventure is a very, very interesting song to me. So they don't play this song again live until they do uh, their kind of greatest hits tours in like the 2010s, basically. So they dust off this song for when they play the Yes album all the way through. So it's interesting to me that this song got no love by the band because I think it might have one of the strongest melodies. And I think they could have zhuzhed it up for a live like live performance, no problem, because I think it's got a great beat, great melody. The lyrics are actually about something. I don't know what they're about, but they seem to be about something. What's interesting is as soon as I've seen How Good People Ends begins... The section of the album I forgot existed. I completely forgot about Adventure and the next song, Perpetual Change. It's funny you say that because I felt the exact same way. Yep. And whereas Adventure I find pretty forgettable, and I probably will re-forget it. <laughs> I, well, I don't want to jump ahead, but um, Perpetual Change was a nice little surprise. Okay. But I, uh, I don't have much to say about this. I think it's pretty forgettable. Interesting. Comes and goes, and it's, I've already forgotten about it. Yeah, I, that's so funny you say that because I felt the exact same way. It's so similar that I had to repeat it. Uh, yeah, I was I was looking at the Wikipedia for it, and I was like, "There's no, I got nothing. I don't remember this song at all." <laughs> <laughs> well, please, please enlighten us. Re- help us remember the song. This will be for those who already love "Close to the Edge," the song "Close to the Edge" from two albums from now. There is one random burst in the clouds where John goes, not right away, not right away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so weird. I wonder if he took that from this song. Because like that is one of the best moments in Close to the Edge, the song Close to the Edge. 
And he, he must have been like, oh, that was so cool, but no one likes my song. <laughs> These next two songs have the feeling of like the ending of Return of the King, where it's like, okay, we're going to do like five more of these, I guess. Like I've already, <laughs> I've had a satisfying finish with, I've seen all good people. But no, this has traditionally always been a skip it song for me. But on this last roundabout, shall we say, wow, I, I, I have grown mm. to absolutely love the song. I, I'll, I'm going to give it a, a second listen after we're done here. It has, I don't know. It has really, really cool chord patterns. It's got really, really, really strong melody. And I'll have to listen like eight more times to hear what the song's about. But it actually sounds to be like he's saying complete sentences, like subject, <laughs> verb, object. It even almost sounds personal. So I, I don't know. There's something in this song that, that made me listen. Give it another listen. But to, to be fair to everyone, this has always been a skip it song for me. Much like the next song, Perpetual Change. So in the divine architecture of this album, they did long, short, long, long, short, long, and we're back at another very long song, Perpetual Change. This is a song about the gravitational effect of the moon on people, obviously. It's about something. That's a, that's a win. I could not have told you that that is what it was about. But uh, here we are again, listening to a song about the moon's gravitational pull on our spirits or something. I've always thought of this as a throwaway, hmm. but here we are. I love this song. So tell, tell me what you love about it, because much like the previous song, I, I, this song doesn't stick with me in probably the similar way that, that you're referring to, like this is a skip it song. But, but I want to know, I wanna know what, uh, what yeah. does it for you with this song. Um, I think the real, real big one is that this song has a lot of parts. They transition excitingly. There's there's a lot of momentum and dynamicism in the song. I think the only thing this song suffers from is it's on the same album as Yours Is No Disgrace, which is this song, mm. but 8,000 times better. Yeah. Like there's there's lots of good good lyrics, good singing, good playing, lots of like cool guitar parts. Lots of little freakouts, but then yours is no disgrace is just a thousand times just like you go you go nuts. Would you say it's less repetitive and uh, like because you like you said with uh, yours is no disgrace, he basically just takes the same line and like repeats it like a mantra in different formats or different soundscapes. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think about what he does with the lyrics on this. I don't recall there being separate verses. Um, I will just give them the props of like, I think they pulled off a really dynamic song very well. You know, I, as the, the non-musician of this group, I did write down something I thought was interesting, interesting even for me, because that I wrote it, um, was great <laughs> drumming from Bill Bruford. Um, not something I normally notice in music, but yeah. uh, really good, really good drumming. And again, I think this, this song changes on a dime like eight times. I think you can really hear how good Bill is. And I think he's still having fun at this point. Like, I think that's very obvious on this whole album. Famously, Bill will leave after two albums' time, but you can tell that he's still having a really good time kind of jazzercising on this album. Yeah, this kind of bleeds into what I had to say about Fragile, but I didn't notice Bill Bruford on this album very much, but he is a fantastic drummer. And in this song, like you said, the ability to change on a dime, not a whole lot of drummers can do that. It's not, it's not an easy task. And, and I think like you can hear him doing like really, really gentle paradiddles and lots of unison playing and all this sort of stuff. Uh, do they play this song live without him? Uh, I think it's similar to Adventure where I don't think it was ever part of their main live repertoire until they did the whole album back to back. No, and I was going to say, I think when you already have Yours Is No Disgrace, Starship Trooper, and I've Seen All Good People, that's... 30 minutes of a concert taken up and it's like why would you add perpetual change and those are three great songs so three i mean three great songs and i and i was gonna say i i personally think there's not a minute wasted on this album i think this album at very least is pleasant top to bottom i'm never asleep so there you have it so that's that's all the songs on this album any final parting thoughts about the wit and wisdom of yes I really like this album, but I can't help look at these albums as a state of transition. I think we've mentioned so many times, like, this person left before this person. If you, if you view this in a vacuum, I think it's a really, really solid entry in the prog rock canon. I mean, probably, what, top 20 prog rock albums of all time? Oh, easily, yeah. But at the same time, knowing what's coming, it's like, ooh, it's good now, but it gets better. Yeah, I mean, that's entirely my feeling about this album. Is I, I think... 
because Close to the Edge exists, I never go back to this album. It was actually, it's a treat to listen to it because I was like, oh, wow, it's really good. And I think this time around, I most understood the genius of yours is no disgrace. Like that song's outrageous. I think, you know, I've always known Starship Trooper and I've seen All Good People Are Great Songs. I think yours is no disgrace was like, wow, I can't believe they they came out punching with this. But Brian, you're completely right. I listened to this album just chomping at the bit to get to Close to the Edge, which is where I, you know, that's just one of my favorite albums of all time. And it's Yes, the way I want Yes to be. But then when we get to mid-70s, yes, because I'm a yes enthusiast, yes will get even more crazy. And I love that. Like, I love their kind of final form where they really drive off a cliff. So this is this is kind of, they're still in the, they're still listenable. They're still tethered to earth. Yes. This album, for me, as as not as big of a yes head as as you two are, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this album, but something that I thought was strange is we've probably listened to this, you know, dozens of times up in the loft. And I was surprised at the fact that uh, I've seen all good people was the only song I really remembered from this album for having Starship Troopers and I'll always blank on the name of the first song. Yours is no disgrace, which are two great songs. I, I agree with you. I don't know why it was so forgettable, <laughs> but um uh, maybe it's because I've yeah. heard I've seen all good people played ad nauseum on uh, KZOK, which is our local classic rock station here in Seattle. So maybe maybe it's the over prominence of that one song that sort of drowns all the others out. This is for what it's worth a, a good yes album. This is the gate under which you have to pass. I think <laughs> if you don't like this album, abandon all hope, ye who enter. <laughs> this is as good as it gets. If you didn't like this album. That, that's a great point. So if you were to give uh, someone who's never heard of prog rock three albums to listen to, what what would this be one of those three for that reason? I mean, 100%. Yeah. I, I think this is a good one. I think those three songs, the three main songs we've been talking about are just good songs. Like they're not good comma prog. <laughs> they are just good songs. Is that because you don't want to give them the absolute best to start with? I mean, I feel like we're like Scientology, where you you can't understand <laughs> the next levels until you climb through the ranks. Yeah, I'll try. I'll chuck that to you then, Brian, because I'd say this is in this kind of sphere where this album is is good to listen to. If you just like rock in general, this is a great album. I'd say maybe in the Court of the Crimson King, which we did last week, mm -hmm. but I can't think of what the next one will be. I think Fragile and Close to the Edge are are pretty intense. If you've never heard Prague before. You know, I'll throw out Dark Side of the Moon, actually, because I think it's it's such a good entry point, and Pink Floyd continues to do such interesting things after that, as well, well as, as well as before. Yeah. You're not going to, like, you know, blow your load, like, starting with Close to the Edge, because then it's, like, it's just downhill from there. Yeah. So, I mean, Close to the Edge, that's like OTA. That's the highest you can go. Yeah. That's when you, that's when you fully understand Oh, no, that's a hard one. No, no, no. No, I don't think it's for mortal ears. I think you have to build up to it. Inoculate yourself. <laughs> I 100% agree with Brian that Dark Side of the Moon is a great entry point. Then maybe like some Rush moving pictures, I, I believe. Yeah, moving pictures is a great one. I guess if you're putting Dark Side in the mix, yeah. I think Dark Side's number one then. But but yeah, no, and then I, I would have easily said this and then in the Court of the Crimson King are probably like they're the closest to you just put on the headphones and you can listen to them all the way through. So it's interesting because sometimes when I hear you talking about prog rock, sometimes I think you don't include Dark Side or Pink Floyd in it. They would be the poster child for prog if they were 100% prog rock. But is there a reason is there a reason why like they're on the fringe? So this is then my grand thesis about all of this. Mm. And I guess we're at episode six now, so I can elaborate on this. I think Pink Floyd, A, will have monster generic success. It takes them out of this really kind of like this embryonic prog rock thing where I think the musicianship is is crazy. The lyrics are kind of weird. I think Pink Floyd always sang about normal things too much. Hmm. I heard a couple things in there. It's level of success, yeah. Uh, level of musicianship, and lyrics. Oh, yeah. So that's are those the three things that define prog then? 
Yeah, and I was going to say, I think Pink Floyd in this era, so before Dark Side of the Moon, they're doing a bunch of psychedelic noodling and they're playing around with lots and lots of crazy experimentation. I think they will still continue to experiment quite a bit after Dark Side, but their songs become a lot more normal and they strip away a lot of the musicianship. And obviously David Gilmour is a guitar legend and we'll leave him there. But they don't do freaky solos like they did in Saucerful of Secrets or whatever. Whereas Yes will go off a cliff playing 20-minute solos and singing about more and more completely detached lyrics, as opposed to Pink Floyd, who will explore love, loss, fame, everything in between. So it's kind of interesting uh, while we're comparing these two bands. At this point, Yes and Pink Floyd are the closest they'll ever be, and they go in two different directions. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, I'd say actually this this and Metal are pretty comparable albums. I think both are the bands finding their sound, and that means Yes going from Beatles to space, and Pink Floyd going from space <laughs> down to Earth. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And I think this is maybe the, the crossing point then. Yeah, because it's like we will come to the two pillars, my my two pillars of of this whole podcast, which will be Dark Side of the Moon and Close to the Edge, which are the heights of mm-hmm. Pink Floyd and Yes, and two more different albums you could not conceive of. Yes has gone completely into the land of extended um, composition, and Pink Floyd's really shaved their sound to something really sparse but beautiful. I would tend to disagree with you a little bit on Pink Floyd like kind of moving out of the prog space because I still think of Wish You Were Here and Animals at least as very proggy albums. And then The Wall is The Wall, which is its own thing. Yeah. In the sense that both Animals and Wish You Were Here have long, long, long songs. And this is why I think Pink Floyd is 100% right for this podcast, definitely prog, all that sort of stuff. We will talk about them ad nauseum in in the coming weeks. But they're just the next level up. They're the, the, the prog that made it to classic rock, and I think this is the prog that just barely didn't. Okay, interesting. And if it hasn't become clear to everyone, like, yes is my, my numero uno in the, in the prog sphere. Like, I, I love them so much. But I think they retain just enough, whatever that is, to not be Pink Floyd, and thus to not have, you know, Dark Side of the Moon level success. Any other generic thoughts? I think it's interesting that John dropped the H out of his name. As a, as a person that doesn't particularly care for my last name, changing your first name seems weirder. <laughs> well, you could add, a, add an H into your name. That's true. Nick Hosmason. Nick Hosmason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll take, the, I'll take the H that John gave up. <laughs> he perplexes me a little bit. He, I, I don't quite get John, which probably maybe is a good thing. Actually, we should real quick go over this because we're being introduced to Yes. We're introduced to the character of John Anderson. So you say he perplexes you. We're just very different in, in the way that we do things, which I think is great. It's, it's nice to see somebody live in their, yep. their true self in a completely different way than I would go about it. Yeah, he's like a hippie moon druid type guy, and that's very much not me. Yeah, doesn't make a lot of sense. The interesting, like, inside baseball part of this, then, is um, he will be called the Little Napoleon by his bandmates. And I think for the fact that his lyrics are so spacey, my read is that he was an unbelievably forceful personality. He writes most of the songs, I mean, accompanied sometimes by Steve or Chris, but he really writes most of the songs. Someone put it as he would show up with an acoustic guitar, play the songs horribly, and then challenge the band, like, if you can't come up with a better song, then make this sound great, which is what they did time and time again. Do we want to hear what our favorite critic gave this album? Thank you, Nick, for reminding me. I got to get the screen right to my face since I'm blind. Okay, here we go. John Anderson, who delivers the inane con three lyrics with prissy expertise and tony k whose keyboards run the gaunt from vague to overweening of the bad guys <laughs> bill bruford who rocks the rather fancy tempos and signatures and chris squire best when he gets a good interlock going with bruford are the neutrals and new guitarist steve howell makes the record worth hearing if not owning his commentary throughout yours is notice grace his live acoustic solo the clap and his duet with himself on worm 
That's German for worm, in case you're interested. Makes the first side mo- almost interesting. And he's the heart of one great cut I've seen of good people where all the artsy eclecticism comes together for six minutes and 47 seconds, B minus. I, I would have guessed it would have been lower based on the actual words in the review. <laughs> what are con three lyrics? That is a good question. And I think it would be worth looking up. Listeners, if you know this, please somehow message Ian and, and tell us. <laughs> yeah, all I see is death con. That's a mystery. Our very knowledgeable listeners can help. So that has been the Yes Album. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. Of course. And thank you, Nicholas. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. Do find us over at Prog Frog Pod on Instagram. And if you have any more thoughts, queries, or long opinions... Hit us up at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. So, that was that, and yes, had their breakthrough, but when we catch up with them next, they'll have yet another personnel change, and we will see them reach even greater heights and create another prog classic, Fragile. But next week, we relax with acoustic guitars and flutes and meditations on organized religion. Join us next week for Jethro Tull's Aqualung. Aqualung.